Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to All Stats Aren't We, a podcast in which Leeds fans cast the combined eye over goings on Elland Road, giving scrutiny to the underlying statistics and tactical footings at work at Leeds United. I'm John McKenzie, the ease past two centre-backs and chip the keeper of the podcast. Oh yes. And I'm joined by the round the keeper and finish smartly of the podcast, Tom Alderson. Oh yes. And finally, the take a shot which ends up going out for a throw-in of the podcast. Oh no. It's Darren Driver. Darren, how are you doing? <laughs> not even the superbly disguised pass to Jack Harrison for the second goal of the podcast. No, no, not that one. No, not even. No, that. The, the other one. The other one. <laughs> the, the other completely mishit shot. Yeah, I'm all right. Thanks. Yeah, not bad. I've had a, a busy Sunday morning doing some bits and pieces in the house. So it's nice to get a break for an hour to come and talk about uh, about some football. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Tom Alderson, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Have you have you just compared Darren to Steve Morrison accidentally, or is that am I, am I reaching there a bit? Darren is the Steve Morrison of the podcasting world. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you set of bastards. <laughs> <laughs> Where's your other R, Darren? <laughs> Darren with one R. It's not a thing, man. <laughs> Soz. I do put a shift in there. To be fair, you do. You'll inevitably leave us for another podcast, and we'll just you'll piss us all off when you come back. <laughs> no. Ever decrease in value from it, lads. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are going to do a double header today. We have a bit of a sh- schedule compression coming up, shall we say? Um, so we've got obviously the Southampton game on Tuesday. So we are going to preview that in the second half of this podcast. But in the first part of this podcast, we are going to look back over the Burnley game, which was a nice, easy uh, sort of slide past uh, one of the teams that we would hope to be beating, but who gave us a few problems last time we played them. Uh, and I think we largely uh, overcame those problems this time around. So let us talk about Burnley and let's start in the time old fashion of asking how did that feel? Tom Alderson, how did that feel? It felt a lot better than I thought it was going to feel after about 15 minutes of the game went past. Um, I, th- I thought, oh God, we're, we're going to just see the second half of the first game played out again for another 90 minutes and I was yeah. I was not looking forward to that. But then after that, I mean, like we we got on top in the first half Um even though I don't think we were very good in the first half, really, but we had the better chances, um, and I think it was. I think Tom Woodhead put it in the group, um, put it in the group chat. Like it was in like that sort of zone where a nil nil would have probably been not enough, but one nil seems probably a bit too generous to us. 
Um, and then it felt like a bit of a championship game after that. Like they they were just sort of trying to push on to try and get the goal, and we we game stated them. Yeah, we should we should get an actual bell. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I agree with that assessment. I think uh, just watching it back, y- you feel as though we yeah, uh, yeah maybe slightly edged the first half. Um, I think going in a goal up was was quite nice. And then you know when you're a goal up against a team like Burnley, you just know you're going to open up uh, the opponent's back line a little bit more than maybe you would if they got the first goal. Uh, and then bringing on Rodrigo, I think, was a smart move because there was space to exploit, and he did exploit it. And Burnley, I think, maybe lapsed a little bit for their for his second, the f- the fourth goal as well. So we got those two goals quite quick succession, uh, and and that was it, pretty comfortable. So um, Darren, how about you? How did it feel? Yeah, much much the same. I, f- I felt um, we were chatting a bit in the during the game, John, and and um, you know I I felt that we were kind of starting to work Burnley out from about fifteen minutes in, and start not not work them out so much as find ways to solve the problems that they were posing us. And I felt that we increasingly did that successfully as the game went on. Obviously, the f- the first goal was key, but but I think that the real um, turning point in the match was. Uh, the second goal because I think even though we were winning at that point they were really on top and and that kind of slightly you know it's quite a lucky goal really because because Alioski's shot is way wide and it's a great reaction from Harrison but I think you'd be hard pressed to say that that he'd you know he'd be able to consistently make that touch and put it in the bottom corner but once that second goal went in I think you could really read the pattern of the game uh, going pretty much as it did and it put me in mind so much nothing quite so much as the last Southampton match it's funny that we're going to talk about Southampton again today because although obviously Burnley in possession are very different tactically from Southampton and although they press in different ways it was a similar problem that we needed to work out and, and how to get through and I, I was really pleased that we that we were able to do that and, and, and I felt we changed the way that we were trying to build up at various points in the first half to try and get through it so I know we'll come on to some of the more specifics of that late but I was really pleased with the performance in the end really enjoyed it it's tempting isn't it to come away from a game where you win 4-0 and just be like yeah you know no problems there 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 were moments in the game where Burnley were on top I think I mean for the first 10 minutes or so Leeds struggled to get out of their own half Uh, as you said in the second half the first 15 minutes there were were the same um, I I suppose the same um, tenor and um, yeah even just looking through the 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 FB ref data this morning uh, even the XG data uh, Burnley put up 1.5 XG to our 2.3 which which obviously sounds a lot closer than than 4-0 so I I thought I would yeah we we should start maybe by just talk, talking about that a little bit we've we've already talked uh, about game state but Jacob Stanbridge of this parish says uh, he sent us a question saying Burnley started the game pressing us really well what changed to allow us more into the game um, I think we've already sort of suggested that that you know getting two goals that maybe weren't particularly high value chances suddenly changed the game and then allowed it allowed us to get a couple of pretty high value chances um, which you know that's that's how it goes uh, but I am interested in the the question of the pressing and, and, and what it was that, that Burnley did well and and um, and how it turned it in, in many respects this game almost felt to me a little bit like the um the the palace game that we lost for did we lose 4-0 in that game 4-1 for 4-1 yeah, for one, yeah. Mm. um when you know they they didn't they they sort of played okay 
got a couple of goals and then suddenly that was it. I was done. Uh, I think we obviously played better in the in this once we got those two goals than they did. And they got a couple of lucky goals, but it was a similar sort of performance, I think, where you know you you, you get the the run of the green and then suddenly you're able to to power away because I thought I didn't think that Burnley were bad uh, by any stretch yesterday. So let's let's just have a chat about about why we think that that Burnley caused us problems in the in the moments where they caused us problems. Darren, we'll start with you. They're very physical in the way they press. They're very powerful in terms of their kind of um, their physicality. They they pressed. They they really tried to press us when we tried to move down the left, particularly with with Alioskin. You know, there were quite a few occasions in the first half or early in the first half when he turned turned possession over. So they were trying to. I think they were trying to funnel us down that side and make Melier clip it to him and then and then put him under quite intense pressure. Um, I felt that. As as the as the game kind of wore on, I th- I felt we did two things. I felt we started to go direct more often, and sometimes those were controlled passes, and sometimes they were just literal clearances and lumping it up and giving giving Pat Bamford something to chase. And then I thought the other thing that we we did that was smart was I felt we stopped trying to build up deep down the left and did our deeper build up play on the right hand side, and then switched to, to to the left once we got into the middle third of the pitch, um, which seemed to work better and, and managed to get um, Harrison isolated against their their right full back quite often so I thought that those were a couple of really um, smart things we did in terms of varying the way that that we play because sometimes I think when we're being pressed we can be a bit predictable because we try the same things over and over again and that makes it quite easy for teams to pen us in whereas yesterday I thought we had a bit more variation in our play um, a bit more movement in the midfield I think click really helps with that um, and helps us to get out of some of those situations so I felt over overall we were able to kind of crack the puzzle within the first 15 minutes of each half and 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 stay beyond their press and obviously once it opened up they were kind of pressing higher but without any great deal of intensity which may, which in that situation as we showed several times this season we'll just pick teams off um and and you know once rodrigo came on i think he showed um certainly in possession um, uh, uh, certainly in possession he showed what his real strengths are in, in the sense that he was able to drop deep you know knock balls off, spin in behind and his movement really kind of pulled them around um, and and he was rewarded with, with two really great goals. So it was, it was a really pleasing thing all around the way we managed to solve it. Yeah, I think I said in the preview that what Burnley do well is they do two things well that are, at least are going to cause Leeds problems. One is that they play direct and that's what they did at the beginning. Like They were just very direct. They, they go from front to back, back to front, sorry, very quickly and you know that's those are always the situations that we we struggle a little bit in defensively when when teams go you know go long in the air physical players and and then and try and get second on second balls and and break us down with our defensive structure a little bit out well it stops our press getting involved as well doesn't it that's the other thing that it does yeah yeah it completely bypasses our press as well and so our press yesterday really didn't have to do anything which is i think why rodrigo was brought on and i think why he did well because that you don't have to press really in in those sort of scenarios um the other thing that they do well is that they get back into defensive structure quite quickly and i think in the first few in in the times when we were struggling we were struggling to be direct we were struggling to get the ball into dangerous areas before they got their sort of two banks of four bank, bank of four and five uh, and and then chris wood in front of them uh, and and if you do that then you know we've we've seen this what brighton did as well brighton are very good at getting into their defensive structures and it then becomes a sort of case of just crossing it into the box where big center backs will will largely clear it out so uh, i thought i thought they did that um fairly well 
uh, yesterday. Tom Alderson, did you want to add anything on this? No, not nothing really. I just have to, I'd agree with your last point, and it's no, I don't think it's any coincidence that our what first, third, and fourth goals came from almost being on the counter or catching them in transition more than because when I think when they actually managed to get those, but those uh, two blocks of four back, we didn't really cause them many problems. To be honest, not none that come to mind. Yeah, and I think if you think back to the first half, I think the only real chance that we created was was that Strouk header that that Fizz passed the the post. Um, beyond that, everything was either outside the box or um, was like a, a sort of outside chance of a header in the box. Um, and you know, we didn't look. Obviously, the goal that we scored was was a really good shot from outside the box. I mean, we'd had a a bit of a tongue-in-cheek conversation in the group chat before the game about the fact that the Leeds have the the highest number of uh, chances from outside uh, the box, and and then obviously that uh, sorry the highest amount of goals scored outside the box, uh, and then we did score that that goal outside the box to to start things off. Um, but there wasn't really any dangerous chances created. I don't think it was only once everything started opening up in the after the second goal as you mentioned, Darren, where where Leeds started looking really dangerous. Um, Let's talk about the structure because we had a lot to talk about with with, with respect to the three three one three structure in the in the preview. We were talking about whether or not it was going to look like a three four three, which I think it largely did. Um, again, it's the, the caveat with our structure is always that our structure is dependent on what the opposition do, and uh, you know when when you're out of possession it's going to look like a 3-3-1-3 because Phillips is going to drop in a little bit deeper and more central. Uh, but in possession, it's going to look more like a 3-4-3. Three, three. Um, so I think it felt like in the second half, we we looked a little bit more 3-4-3-ish. Um, we've talked at length about not looking good in the in the 3-4-3 three, three structure. Um, and we had a couple of questions uh, about that. So Ellis Minelli said, I feel there was a disconnect between Phillips and Click at times during build-up due to formation. Is Phillips asked to do too much in a three-three-one-three, and should we look closer to a three-four-three at times? Um, I'll put this to you, Tom Alderson, first. Uh, I think, as we've said, like the three-three-one-three, three-four-three thing is, it's just dependent on whether we're not we're in or out of possession, largely. Um, but what do you make of the of the the question of the link up between Phillips and Click? I think. It's a valid point, and there were times that that was noticeable. It's I don't know if I've made this up, but is there a fit like a Bielsa sort of philosophy that you don't want two players in a vertical line or something because it limits the options, or if I completely made that up? But I think I think like that when that happened, it did mean make it more difficult for us to get forward. And there was also times when Click was like playing on the wing as as he does, and uh, that kind of limited the options for Phillips to get forward. And I think. Th- that the way that that was that was mainly fixed in the second half. I think there was there were times that Dallas was playing a little bit more central, um, and I think that helped out. And then there were other t- obviously with Rodrigo coming on and dropping deep just gave that extra option for to, to get the ball forward in central areas, which really helped. But we've we've mentioned a lot about the three three one three before that if you, you take the mid, a midfielder out and you put a centre back in so we're, all, we're always going to struggle to build up through the centre when that's the case yeah and our build up structures never really work through the middle so far as we're not looking to actually progress the ball through the central space unless there's space in front of us like, like Click had when he could just drive into that space in front of him usually the, the, the central midfielder's job is to is to receive the ball from the fullback 
and uh, and play it through to one of the wide one of the wide players or involve themselves in one of those wide build up scenarios where they where they push out sort of to the corner of the box uh, and and play the ball between them so that you can get the ball into the into the box so i think we don't really have much of a connect between our central midfielders anyway um i think the general feeling is that we move the ball it's it's a sort of move the ball out from the goalkeeper into the pivot out to the the, to the fullback into the central midfielder out to the the wide players is the general obviously it's not a hard and fast rule and if space opens up you will they will exploit it but i don't think there's necessarily too much of a, a of a worry about there being a disconnect between the two um darren Yudav Chawan said, why do you think we struggle a bit in build-up with three at the back? And I think this is an interesting one as well. Yeah, I think think it's because it's kind of generally accepted that, particularly on the left-hand side, that that the player that you need to be best in the build-up phase is probably our weakest player in that build-up phase. Um, So that we we know that if, if Alioski receives the ball in our back third, that we're likely to be in trouble if he's pressed at all. And that proved to be the case yesterday. Um, And... Similarly, although Dallas, I think is is better, you know, obviously better than Alioski in that role. I think when when we put Luke Aylin at the at the right centre back role, we really miss him in terms of his ability to help us build up from the from in the in the wide right areas. Um, so that's kind of why I was thinking yesterday. Although I didn't think it was going to happen, and I thought we would start with the lineup that we did. I was sort of thinking, I hope that he drops Phillips into the back three um, and pushes Aylin um, into the right wing back area and moves Dallas into that central eight area because I thought that would give us the best chance of getting our best ball progressor uh, involved in, in the build up play. Um so I think I think it's largely to do with that. I think we we, we do struggle um to to move the ball through those areas smoothly um at times, although there were times when it clicked beautifully in both halves there were times when we played really you know, managed to, to progress the ball really well. But I think that by and large that's that's where it breaks tends to break down. Just a couple of observations. I think on in the second half, I think we saw Luke Ayling inverting quite a bit, weirdly. Um, so he came inside and helped out and sometimes was even picking up the ball from like Melier uh, between the two centre-backs. Um, the rest of the time we did see, and again, maybe more in the second half, we did see Dallas inverting quite a lot. So sitting alongside Phillips and giving ailing that space to push into um so there's a lot of times in possession when ailing would go quite far forward and and we would almost look like we were playing a, a classic back four um in, in possession but um i think that helped a lot more in the second half especially when burnley's press dropped off uh, a bit that that sort of helped out the other thing is is that as we've said you know losing a central midfielder obviously you've got Dalla, um you've got phillips as the pivot and then you only have one eight technically in in click and I think that that means that the this, that central midfield position is expected to help out on both sides and so you lose a little bit of fluidity depending on where the ball's going and where the where the eight is so yeah because you tend to get triangulation on both sides when we play with the four don't you you tend to get them uh, them both sort of splitting um whereas I think it does make us it makes it a bit more predictable where we are going to build up because you'll see which side the eight naturally drifts to yeah, and I think we had a question from Daniel Moroni, um, which sort of touches on this as well. Um, he says, I appreciate our wingers tend to drop deeper to receive possession and build up, but Rafinha seemed particularly deep in the second half, almost in a right wing-back position at times. Was this just tactical, tactical situational, uh, where we, we were playing on the counter and trying to find him in position where he could switch play easier and overload on the left? Or was it just a case of finding our most creative player on the side we tend to build up? I think I think this is structural. I think, as we've said, if you're going to have Dallas inverting and you're playing a- Ailing as a, as a right centre-back, your, your right side 
sided forward is going to have to drop in a little bit more because you don't have quite the the same like leniency to to link up as well so for him to get to the ball he has to drop in a little bit deeper just to cover for that for the fact that that you are opening up that channel for for ailing so i i i personally kind of think that's the reason why uh, rafinha looked a little bit deeper i don't know if either of you had any thoughts on that yeah i thought most of his good play was done in that middle third build-up phase yesterday i thought i thought he was i thought in in terms of like attacking in their final third i thought charlie taylor really kind of kept him on under control by and large but um yeah I, th- I i agree with you john i think i think that was that was the reason for it i think there was some point like it's more of a defensive sort of point this but like their most of their threat came from mcneil and taylor they were it was obviously the more of their threat was coming from their left hand side so he, and he did he did a good job on that but that was maybe part of the reason why he found himself in those deeper cut positions compared to what he's used to let's move on a lot of people wanted us to talk about rodrigo understandably um so a couple of our, our regulars. El said, do you think the Rodrigo as a 10 might become less common next season, particularly with the potential new recruits slash a fully recovered click? Uh, and Dan Holdsworth said, yes, I came to ask the same question. Rodrigo has come on at nine at each of the last three or four games, suggesting Bielsa sees his future at nine. Do we agree? Uh, Tom Alderson? Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think he looked, um, he's, well, the Spurs game as well, he looked incredibly sharp when he came on. Um, and I think you can, Get away, you can get away with the sort of pressing issues a little bit more. I think not not completely. Like I still, there was there were times yesterday that he he presses, and the, I think the difference between him and Bamford is like Bamford will, is actively trying to stop that that pass getting off, whereas Rodrigo's just like, oh, I'll just run and put him under pressure a bit. Um, so I think, but I do think he gets away with that more at nine, and I think it just plays to his strengths more playing in that position compared to being a ten. Um, and I think it will give us sort of less defensive issues so yeah I would say the long term I think it would be or next season Rodrigo will be playing more at nine we'll see him and I think it'll be Click, Roberts and I don't know there's a, if a new signing comes in can do that 10 position and probably do it better than Rodrigo yeah I think I think I'd broadly agree with that I think um I think we I think we we might have seen yesterday albeit in circumstances which really suited him I, I think we might have seen yesterday what Bielsa's intent was, or what the intent was when he, when he was initially brought in, because it, it kind of be, it kind of seemed to crystallise for me what 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 is what his true strengths might be in, in in our team, certainly in possession. And I know I keep putting that caveat in, but I do think it's an important one. Um, yeah, so I, I suspect that he will be competing with Bamford for the for the nine slot next year, and and potentially there might even be games and you know in those games where we play something which looks closer to a three five two where we see them both on the pitch. Yeah, we've been we've been quite clear, I think, in our criticisms of Rodrigo in saying that there are going to be certain games that suit him, and I think yesterday's game is definitely one that is, is that suited him. It's same with the the Villa away game where again Villa pushed up and left themselves quite exposed and he helped us exploit those spaces really well. I think that we'll we will see him being used in exactly the same way we saw him being used yesterday, which is he'll largely be on the bench and it will come off um after Bamford's done a lot of the hard yards in in sort of you know, you know, doing the pressing, doing the hold up play when when teams are, are maybe a little bit more defensively circumspect. Um, I don't think we'll we'll necessarily see that. There may be times when we're playing against teams where we think that we can do that from the off, where we might see him. But I I just don't think you need to worry too much about that. I think he's he's the sort of player who exploits space, and you're going to have more space towards the end of games. So why? And he's he's over thirty now. Why not just use him 
off the bench, um, use him for, for to to really um, you know pick his pick his um, best qualities and 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 use them against the opponent. I think there's there's a sort of assumption that seems to be made that you know if he came on with 30 minutes to go and scored two goals yesterday, then if we'd played him the full time, he would have scored six, which <laughs> clearly isn't the way that that things work. So I think it's it's important to to recognise what what it is that Rodrigo does well. Uh, and how we can use them in our team rather than just being like, well, this player scored two goals now, he has to start the next game. Um, FPL Finn had a question. How do Rodrigo and Bamford differ? Darren, did you want to touch on that? Yeah, I, I, I do. I think, I think that's a really good question. And, and I, think, I think the way that I would put it is that, that primarily what Bamford does is occupy defenders and, and what Rodrigo does is try and evade them and try to find space away from them. Um, and I think that they're both really important things to do. And I'm not saying that Bamford's movement isn't good and that he can't escape defenders when he needs to and, and, and everything, but but he, he's really kind of good at, at playing um, quite a... Quite an, quite an unsophisticated, and I don't mean that pejoratively, but quite an un, unsophisticated role in the sense that he is prepared to go and battle with central defenders central defenders as he did yesterday he's prepared to do the the hold up play and he's prepared to prepared to take kicks whereas I think what Rodrigo is more likely to do is he's more likely to try and pull into the midfield try and lay the ball off and then try spinning behind them which I don't think is something that you're particularly going to see see Bamford do. Tom did you want to add anything? Uh, nothing more to add really that's I had a few notes written down and Darren just listed them all off for me. So. <laughs> what a nerd Darren is eh? <laughs> um, another question that came up quite a lot was um, about the question about Pascal Strauch over Liam Cooper, how much should be read into that. Uh, Brolin ate the pie, said is Pascal's succession planning by accident and design? And then we had a lot of other questions sort of saying, does this indicate that that that, um, that sort of order of priority is flipped now? Uh, Tom Alderson, what's your take on this? I would still say Cooper is first choice, but it's going to be over the summer. I think it might be that Strauch is first choice going into the ne- next season. I think... I I just feel there are things that Cooper is better at than Stroud, but I just think with from the set pieces both at both ends, he just he makes me, I just think he gives us that threat, and I don't feel like I'm as concerned when he plays. In terms of if it is it like succession planning by accident or design, um, I I don't. It depends how good the recruitment for Stroud was going to be because I what I don't think he's been a lot better than any anyone out of all of us thought he was going to be. So it's probably just worked out very well. So it's probably a little bit of an accident, but it's a very, it's a very nice accident. I'm very happy with it. Yeah, I think I think he was brought in with high hopes, wasn't he? When when you know when when they when they recruited him, but but I think with any young player, you can't guarantee that they're going to develop to the level of their what their apparent potential, can you? So I think that he looked really good, and you know I watched him a lot in the 23s season in Bielsa's first season, and he, he looked looked fantastic all the way through that you know, through that season. Um, but that doesn't mean that he's going to be able to make the step up. And I think, I think you know, to that point, it's kind of, it's not accidental, but there's, there's a kind of lot of, um, a lot of moving parts within it. But once he made it apparent towards the end of last season that he was a serious player and a serious contender, then I think it does become a bit more by design. Um, and that, that, you know, clearly he's, he's pushed himself right up in the pecking order and is now, you know, you could make an argument that, that he's, that he's, uh, that he should be the first choice. Um, I'm not necessarily certain that I'd make that argument right at this point, as big as big a fan of him as I am. 
Yeah, and I don't think it even really matters at this point, right? We know that what's going to happen is that at some point Strauk is going to be the first choice left centre-back over Cooper. Um, does it matter when it happens exactly? I don't think so. Um, in terms of the question itself, I think the the general idea is whether or not that the actually Bielsa is just picking Strauk on the basis of the fact that he's a better player rather than just because Cooper's been injured, I suppose. Um, I don't know if you had any thoughts on that, Darren. No, I, I I suspect that that if if Cooper had been fully fit and been involved in in the team for the last couple of weeks, that, that Cooper Cooper would have played. Um, I think I think that something that we don't necessarily see, but which which you hear players talk about a lot, is that Cooper on on the pitch really is the primary organizer of the defensive structures and is very vocal and is and and is you know kind of really good from from that point of view. Um, and for all Pascal Strauch's strengths and, and abilities and qualities I don't think you know kind of communication with the rest of his teammates is necessarily high up on on that list so I think even from that basis alone although obviously Luke Aileen is constantly pissing and moaning at everyone to try and get him to, to do what he wants them to do um, I don't necessarily think that that's yeah I think Cooper is is the club captain and I think he's I also think that that uh, on merit he deserves his first his first team place when he when he's fit and when he's uh, available, because his performance this season has been outstanding throughout the whole year. Uh, last week we tweeted about Matthias Click being back, and you pointed out, Darren, we maybe needed a little bit more sample size. Um, I guess we've got a bit more sample size. So um, Richard Lang says, what bearing does Matthias being back on Song playing the forward eight slash ten roles equate to our press looking excellent again, allowing Bielsa ball to fire? Um, yeah, what do what do we make of of Matthias Click? Is uh, these are good signs, right? Yeah, definitely. He he looked he looked really good again yesterday. He just looks like he's moving more freely, and you know, like just to the eye, he looks like he's moving more freely, and he looks like he's more able to kind of do the things um, that we expect him to do. You know, he's able to do all the running. He's able to get try and get involved, and and, and although we weren't able to press uh, massively successfully yesterday because of the way that Burnley played, I still felt that he was trying to make meet you know, make all the correct runs, and and in terms of in possession, you know, he, he kind of looked looked like he normally does he was trying to pull the strings trying to probe trying to do all the all the wonderful scripted play <laughs> that, that we <laughs> that, that we get involved in right, you're dealing with twitter this week <laughs> yeah sorry sorry <laughs> uh so yeah i thought and, and obviously the the goal was was great and very reminiscent of the one he scored against derby and uh, hobsey pointed that out this morning it also reminded me of it yesterday of the the goal he scored against derby at second bielsa's second game so all in all encouraging signs and and i was I was being slightly facetious when I said said we needed more sample size uh, last week. By the way, <laughs> yeah, uh, Tom Alderson, any thoughts on Click? Yeah, it's, well, he is he is our best presser of the ball, isn't he? So if we want to play this, um, the, like the ideal version of Bielsa ball, then it, you, him on form is exactly what you want. Um, is what you want, and I think in in possession, I think again he he is the, sort of the best midfielder that we have to play that. Um, the, to, to get those overload on the wings that we that we be also want so yeah if if he's playing well and if we can get it would be nice to see him have a full season next year of well after having a rest and not being injured because hopefully he can get to back to the levels that he was back for the first 10 games because he was unbelievable well would you believe that we've managed to do the review section in half an hour so look at us we're getting more wow. professional as the season goes on <laughs> no mention of Melier though did you want to talk about Melier, Darren? No, he, he just did very well, didn't he? 
He did, yeah, but he always does very well. Like, <laughs> yeah. There's only so many times you can say Melier did very well in a, in okay. a podcast, I suppose. But yeah, Melier did well. I, Darren is right. <laughs> but let's move on and talk about the Southampton game, which is coming up on Tuesday, I believe. So this week I was lucky enough to talk to Lucy Heiner, who is a Southampton fan and an FPL expert. And this is what she had to say about Southampton. So Lucy, hi, how are you doing? I'm all right, thanks. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing really well. It's great to have you on. We're now very close to the end of the season. Looking back over Southampton's campaign, would you say it's a good season, a mediocre season, a bad season? I think it's been such a contrasting season, um, kind of between two halves, that it's actually quite difficult to give you an overall assessment. I think obviously at the beginning of the season, um, we kind of built very high expectations amongst our fan base because we were riding high and things were going well. And, and things have collapsed so significantly in the last half of the season that I think we'd probably come to the conclusion that it had been fairly mediocre. Uh, I'd hoped for kind of ninth to 13th, that kind of area outside the top eight. And it doesn't look like we'll quite make that now. So, yeah, I think there's because there's so much disappointment around the place, it's it's difficult to say more than mediocre. The narrative about Southampton season has been that they started off well, but then dropped off pretty vertiginously after beating Liverpool back in January. Um, no doubt you've had to talk through this drop-off a lot, but for for the benefit of Leeds fans, why do you think this drop-off happened? I think like Leeds, we have a very intensive style with probably not the kind of size of squad that the majority of Premier League teams enjoy, or certainly not those that we would hope to be competing with. Um, and I think it's a particular problem for our kind of four-two-two-two style, in the sense that when energy levels drop um, and the, the intensity kind of drops on that high press, it has quite important tactical implications in the sense that it becomes a very flat four-four-two, which is actually quite easy to play through. Which was often one of the things that we were particularly good at was making ourselves difficult to play around. And obviously, when those levels drop, it becomes a problem. And I think. You know, when you have those very intense fixed schedules over Christmas, that becomes quite a problem. Um, we've got kind of a poverty of depth in some really key areas, um, which unfortunately also happened to be where we got injuries. So, for example, we lost Carl Walker-Peters uh, for quite a long period, who is our only senior right back. Um, so that, that wasn't the easiest. Uh, we obviously, in um, the game we last played Leeds, lost Oriol Romeu, and that's had quite a significant impact on our central midfield, particularly as his kind of deputy, um, Diallo, has had kind of his own problems with injury and, and since injury hasn't really kind of recovered to his previous levels. So that's been a challenge. And obviously, um, I don't want this to become a massive um, stereotype, but Danny Ings is obviously a massive kind of key man for us and has struggled to stay fit in a way he didn't struggle last season when he obviously scored all those goals. And even when fit, he's one of those players you have to be quite careful in the way you manage him because he can't really play, you know, a couple of games a week. If there is a midweek game, we often have to look at um, making a bench player or kind of reducing his minutes. So, so that's been quite difficult as well. Um, so yeah, it's it's that combination of a very intense system, a very thin squad and, and some really unfortunate injuries, which, you know, only exacerbate those issues. I'm a little loath to bring this up, but there have been two 9-0 defeats in the last two seasons. And I think a lot of people use that as a sort of, uh, I don't know, portent for something to do with <laughs> Ralph Hasenhüttl's tactics. What's your whole take on, on that? Is it just is it just simply the case of, as you've said, they're the, the sort of worst instances of, of Southampton looking tired in certain in certain games? I've had this conversation with quite a number of people kind of from outside the Southampton fan base. 
And I think there's a temptation to look at two nine nils and think that they're indicative of the same issue. Um, I'd say the first one is very different from the second one in the sense that the first one against Leicester came down pretty much to just being very bad at football. Uh, this was before Hasenhutler changed to his favoured 4-2-2-2 system, which has become kind of our, our signature. We were lying low in the table. And to be quite frank, that 9-0 just felt like a a kind of chapter in the story of relegation, to be quite honest. It, it seemed really hopeless at that point. Um, the second happened in rather different circumstances. And I think that's where it comes back to those things I was just talking about in terms of injuries, Um a, a style of play that really relies on people being at their kind of maximum physical level. Um, and we also ended up losing a second man in that game rather than just one. So that also contributed to that 9-0. Um, so while I think there are probably issues with Hasenhutl's tactics, which I'm sure we'll get onto, and I think there are questions about his kind of ability to adapt to games, um, I would say that, you know, they don't come down to the same issue. And I would hope that we won't end up with a third season with a 9-0 in it. <laughs> yeah, it seemed fairly unlikely, but never say never, I suppose. I thought that about the first one. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned there, the, talking about Hasenhutl in general. How, how do the fans feel about Hasenhutl now that you've had, I guess, a good chunk of time now to appreciate his pros and cons? I think it's been very difficult from a fan perspective in the sense that he had a very kind of important and crucial impact when he first came in to replace Mark Hughes and, and you know, took us away from a, a relegation battle that we thought we would inevitably succumb to, I suppose. Um, and then he had a very difficult start to the following season where we had that lesser defeat. Um, so that kind of you know, flowed in the other direction. Then we obviously had that very strong start to this season. And again, we've kind of ebbed away again. So it actually makes it quite difficult. Um, to kind of keep up with, you know, current perspective on Hasenhutl. Um I think there was obviously a lot of early season kind of love for him, a lot of a lot of faith paid in him. And obviously over the summer, we, you know, put a lot into making sure he was able to develop his own style um, away from the first team. So obviously that kind of playbook system where we he now influences everything down to the under nines. So... Um, you know, there's been a lot of investment that way from the club and from the fans. Um, I think there's a frustration which has emerged in the last half season that we aren't as tactically flexible as we perhaps should be. And, you know, we've we've become very synonymous with this 4-2-2-2. But when it hasn't worked, he's been quite reluctant to change it. Um, and I think that's a, a become a bit of a frustration. I think sometimes fans, you know, drop into this, oh, if we just change the tactics, we'll be fine. Um, but at the same time, he hasn't really shown anything um, kind of innovative in, in that sense. And I think there's also a concern that perhaps he's slow to make changes during the game. So a lot of our subs are very late on, often when kind of a result's beyond us. And often he's made some changes which were seen to kind of um, weaken the team rather than necessarily offer something new. Um, so, yeah, I think there's there's a growing frustration. I think some fans would like to see him leave this summer. I'm not one of them. Um, I think he has got his own problems, but I think a lot of them are embedded in, in the kind of situation the club is in more broadly with regards to kind of recruitment, um, the youth team and and other issues, which I think would probably face any manager. And I don't think there are many better suited, really. We've been talking a lot on our channel recently about what we want to see from the last few games of the season. So I'll put the question to you. What do you want to see from Southampton in your last three games this season? 
I think this is probably one of those things where the views of the ownership or the board or the management probably differ from the fans. I think our quite stringent sell-to-buy model, which will put us under a lot of financial pressure this summer, um, will mean that we are very focused on positional bonuses um, in the run-in. So, you know, that getting those extra few places that might make the difference financially. Um, whereas I would say that a lot of fans, including myself, um, would like to see a bit more experimentation in terms of involving youth, thinking ahead to what might be the case next season in terms of um, player changes so that we can start to blood new players and, and see how they adapt. I think a good example in the Palace game would be that Minamino started and he's been fairly ineffectual. And meanwhile, someone like Nathan Teller from our academy has been quite impressive and wasn't given the opportunity. And I think uh, we're likely to see similar trends going into to the end of the season because I think, as I say, that the focus will be on those positional bonuses. So what do you expect to happen over the summer with Southampton? Is there going to be anything like a, a bit of a rebuild? Is there going to be a lot of players brought in or do you think that the things will carry on much the same as they are? I think the real concern for this summer is the contract situation of a lot of the players. So Bertrand announced earlier this week that he was leaving. Um, he's the only left senior left back at the club, much like KWP is our only right back at the club. So he will need to be replaced. Um, Ings and Vestergaard, who have both been pretty significant to our season this season and last season, uh, are coming into their final year. And there's no news or kind of indication that they're signing new deals. Um, obviously, we're not a club in a position where we can afford to let them leave for free next summer. So I would expect some difficult decisions probably need to be made around their situation. And we also have the legacy of very poor recruitment three or four years ago, um, which has left some fringe players um, who are difficult to move on. So for example, uh, we had to terminate uh, Carrillo's contract who cost us 19 million pounds um, we're left with the likes of Elia Nusi, who's on loan at Celtic, um, Mario Lamina, who's been on loan at Fulham. Um, quite a number of those players that are quite clearly not a part of Hasenhutl's plans, but will need to be moved on some way or another, either to free up some money, which seems unlikely, or at least um, reduce some pressure on a wage bill, which has got pretty out of hand in recent um, years. And, you know, that has been a focus of the club um, in terms of why we've ended up with such a kind of shrunk squad because that those wage demands were quite serious. So I'm expecting kind of a bit of turnover in quite key positions. And I think this is bound to place quite um, a lot of pressure on our recruitment. I think recruitment under Harson Hootel, although he doesn't you know, oversee it directly himself, has been much improved um, over a few year period where, again, we picked up those kinds of fringe players that haven't been particularly good. The likes of Shea Adams, Jadepo, um, Salasu, they, they all look like they've got good potential and, and can grow into something, but they, they will need to, to develop quickly, quite frankly, um, in order to kind of fill the holes that I'm expecting to emerge. Well, let's start looking forward to the game between these two sides. And what did you make of the last game? Well, <laughs> I was hoping we didn't have to talk about this. Um, he, it was obviously um, incredibly disappointing. Um, I expected it to be something quite tight and high scoring and we obviously didn't fulfil our side of the deal. Um, I think that collapse in the second half after quite a bright start of the game was, was a huge disappointment and, that, and was actually kind of a, a catalyst for prompting fans' questions about Hasenhutl. That was you know, one of the games where we saw, at least on social media, a huge number of questions about 
whether he knew how to manage a game, change a game, stop, you know, a team a team collapsing, which, you know, <laughs> as we've covered, has been a little bit of a theme. Um, so, you know, that was a, a real disappointment. And I was actually quite looking forward to the game in the sense that I thought it would be entertaining and I thought it would be, you know, two very um, kind of intensive like high pressing teams kind of making a really good game of it and yeah for us not to really turn up especially in that second half um was was pretty disappointing yes so do you expect anything different tactically from Hasenhüttl this time around i think he might just purely because of our kind of squad situation at the moment so ryan bertrand looks unlikely to be available and even if he is available i think we're likely to change because obviously he won't be here next season so i think hasenhutl will be looking at kind of potential alternative ways of setting up so i would expect to see the same kind of three at the back or five at the back um system that we saw against palace um, I don't know if that will have any impact on the on the outcome. I would say that we are starting to look a little bit more uh, defensively solid, um, although I would say the Liverpool game probably should have been worse, but we, we kind of got away with it. Um, so, yeah, I'm expecting a bit of a change, but probably not uh, entirely voluntarily. I did rewatch the game against Crystal Palace that you played recently and, and I did notice as you mentioned that you were playing something closer to a back three in possession how much do you think this is tactical and how much do you think this is because you don't have an available left back at the moment? It's quite difficult to know um, and as I said I think even if Bertram becomes available he'll stick with it. I think a lack of tactical flexibility as, as I've kind of mentioned has been a bugbear and we do now finally have a kind of viable left-sided centre-back alternative in Salasu, who I don't know if you noticed, but came on in the second half against Palace and added a really good balance to to that back three system. I think the concern in the past had been that when we play with a back three, we invariably ended up with Vestergaard, who um, you know is, is a good passer with both feet, but he's obviously not naturally going to um, enjoy those left-footed passes. And he also lacks that kind of bit of pace that you might want from those wider centre-backs. So... I would expect that we'll, we'll carry on with that. Um, and I think that one of the, the kind of big questions for Hasenhutl in the summer, beyond those kinds of recruitment questions I, I identified, is that he will want to develop, I would hope, some option of an alternative system. And we haven't really seen that. And I would hope that this, this kind of variation we've seen, um, while might not be a regular occurrence next season, will at least give him the option to kind of change things around uh, mid-game because when he's tried three at the back systems in the past, we've become quite uncohesive and, and a bit muddled, really. So um, working on this, especially when you know you're safe, probably isn't isn't such a bad idea. Leeds have been a little bit more solid with their defending of set pieces of late. They were the worst team um, midway through the season. I'm not sure actually of the stats anymore, but obviously with a player like James Ward-Prowse, you'd think that Southampton would be targeting set pieces on Tuesday. How important has James Ward-Prowse been for you this season? Um, incredibly important. He's on for his second consecutive season of playing every minute of Premier League football, which I think for any central midfielder in the league is is pretty impressive. And he's also been remarkably consistent in doing so. I think there's a assumption that it, with our style of play, playing every minute would you know eventually have an impact on your performances. But he's done so you know invariably very well. And often left with quite a lot of responsibility. So I've, you know, spoken about the kind of turmoil we've had uh, with injuries, and that has applied to, you know, his partner in midfield. 
and and he's done a great job of kind of covering up a lot of those cracks. Um, I think his set pieces, which are invariably, you know, the focus of of the neutral, um, have probably gone to a, to another level this season. He's already scored four direct free kicks, so that, that's pretty impressive. And he's obviously um, a massive threat from kind of indirect set pieces and corners as well. Um, I yeah, I'd I'd just be cautionary on James Wilhouse in saying that he is a lot more than a set piece specialist. Or you know, while that might be his major strength, he has an incredible work rate and has a, that adapted himself into a central midfielder that I never really thought he would be. He had that kind of choir boy image where he wouldn't really get involved. He'd stay a lot on the right and, and be quite peripheral to play. Whereas now he's pretty much a defensive midfielder that gets stuck in. And if you saw Palace um, the other day, he he likes to wind up Wolf Sahar. That seems to be his... Uh, <laughs> favorite hobby as well so yeah no he's a he's an incredibly important player and I'm, I'm really relieved that he's you know not one of those that I expect to leave yeah and I'm watching him the other day just really impressed at his tempo as well in the midfield it seemed as though he was mm. just controlling everything that that Southampton were doing in terms of the build-up um and it's yeah it was just a real joy to watch him play I haven't watched a huge amount of Southampton recently and um yeah just just watching him was was just incredible seeing just the development that he's had there on the subject of important players for you, who else has been important this season? I like to look beyond Danny Ings because I think everyone says, oh, Danny Ings, Southampton, he scores a lot of goals, and he does. Um, but I think there are a couple of players that have arguably been as important, if not more important. I think Stuart Armstrong kind of goes under the radar a lot. Um, he's you know very progressive with the ball, likes to carry the ball, but is also you know very willing to take on shots, very willing to kind of look for a kind of a bit more risky passing. Um, he's predominantly played as one of the wide tens in the system, but has had to adapt recently to playing in central midfield. And I know he gives some people palpitations playing this role because he he, he as I said he tries those kinds of risky moves, um, but he's he's adapted pretty well. Um, and he's just been incredibly important in providing us with a bit more of a kind of cutting edge where when we've struggled for goals, especially when we've lost people like Danny Ings. Um, he's also deceptively fast. I think this might go under the radar as someone who's not kind of a typical winger. He he is very quick and nippy across the floor. And I think that probably caught Palace out a couple of times Um earlier in the week. So yeah, he'd be one. And I also think Yannick Vestergaard, and and this is why I'm I'm particularly nervous about his contract situation, is that particularly early in the season when we were in that very good run of form, he's been very good at helping open up very kind of banked defensives. You know, the kind of likes of Burnley who will settle into those kind of two obvious banks. He's very good at drawing a player out, kind of finding a pass and, and doing something a little bit more typically creative um than than your average centre back and and that was you know he was one that we really missed when he was injured because our other centre backs aren't capable of providing that and it gives kind of um opposition attacks one less thing to think about really so um yeah he he's going to be a huge miss if he leaves which i expect him to do um and i think he'd be a massive asset to a number of clubs despite his kind of lack of pace, which I think was the major frustration uh, when he first came. So looking more specifically at the game uh, on Tuesday, how are you looking injury-wise at the moment? Fortunately, better than we were. I think it's definitely much improved, um, albeit not perfect. 
Um, so we saw in the Palace game, Ings is back, which is a, a massive relief. And he's obviously capable of finding goals that, quite frankly, the rest of our team isn't capable of finding. Although, to be fair, not many strikers in the league either. Um, Walker Peters has been back for a while and he, he'd been a huge miss. Um, so that's great. I think the obvious kind of absentees would be Oriol Romeu, who we obviously saw in all of his shining glory in the, in the last game against you guys with that tackle on Rafinha. Um, he's been a, a big kind of miss in terms of, you know, really stamping authority on a midfield, especially when we've had to turn to the likes of Armstrong, who isn't really kind of defensively minded. Um, but yeah, I don't think it's a particularly bad injury situation. I would certainly wouldn't be in a frame of mind where I would say that injuries are going to be the reason that that kind of defines this game. So if you were to hazard a, a lineup for Tuesday, what would you go with? I'm expecting a, a fairly similar one to the one versus Palace, perhaps with Salasu as a replacement for Stevens, given that left-footed merit we spoke about and, and the kind of positive impact he has a, had as a sub. Um, I'd hope to see um, another wide player for Minamino, who, as I said, is, has really struggled um, despite some kind of impressive early goals. Um, he hasn't really been able to adapt um, I think there are probably quite a number of questions about what happens to him this summer. Um, so I was hoping for for maybe Teller or Gineppo or one of the other wide players to um, take, in, take over from Minamino or even potentially bringing in a central midfielder like Diallo who would then free up Armstrong to replace that, that position. But yeah, I'm expecting something fairly similar to, to what we saw at Palace. And uh, this is a question I ask all of our guests, but which of your players do you think need to perform well if you're to be Leeds? I think it probably draws on what I was just saying there. So I think our attacking midfielders, given that you guys like to push on your fullbacks, um, given that they kind of op- occupy those little those spaces, um, are going to be pretty important. Um, as usual, we'll say that Danny Ings and Adams need to be on it in terms of particularly making kind of things awkward for Phillips and making things difficult for your centre-backs, just trying to put people under pressure. And I think also that Danny Ings has shown that if he's on form... You, you don't even have to be particularly good in a game and he'll find a goal. So, yeah, I would say in the kind of attacking areas that that would be my main focus. Um, it's going to be concerning not having someone like Romeo to kind of stem your tide from midfield, but uh, we'll see how that goes. On the other side of the team's sheet, I suppose, which Leeds players worry you in particular? Well, it really depends if, if we're expecting to see Rafinha start. I, I noticed that Bielsa had said something about wanting to make sure players were 100% ready to go. So um, I guess it depends if Rafinha is available. He he is the one that I think most teams in the league really are worried about. Um, obviously, you know, Patrick Bamford, I think, is, as you all well know, has probably surpassed expectations. And he's probably one that I'm more scared than I expected to be scared of, if that makes sense. Um, especially as, you know, our, cent- our centre-backs and, and kind of main defensive structures haven't looked that great. Um and I guess the final one, I think Phillips, just in terms of making sure we can... Is he available? I don't know, actually. I'm just saying this. Yeah, I think he will be available, yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, in terms of kind of stemming the tide and, and making sure we have kind of control over midfield, I think um, we've stepped off midfielders a bit too much at times this season and it's kind of cost us, really. Well, I never ask for predictions on this podcast, but um, I am interested in how you think the game is going to ebb and flow. So what do you expect the, the game to, to sort of open out as on Tuesday? I think we may see a similar pattern to the last game in the sense that I expect us to start brightly, 
we are like historically quick starting and and then tend to slow down in the second half and I don't think this game will be particularly different. I'm quite honestly expecting another defeat, but um, something narrower. Um, I don't expect to see the kind of collapse we saw in the second half last time. And I've seen progression in the last three to four games, especially in in the game against Leicester, which makes me think we we are unlikely to kind of um, implode in quite the same way. So yes, I'm not not confident of a win by any means, um, but I am more optimistic than than the last result should should make me (laughs) well lucy it's been a pleasure having you on uh what's the best way for our listeners to catch what you're putting out just following me on twitter i'm at lucy heinet i'm that's pretty much all i do i appear on podcasts so uh yeah give me a listen if you hear me well thanks so much for coming on today mother's day is around the corner find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from blue nile From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. So that was Lucy Heiner, a Southampton fan and FBL expert, and she was talking about Southampton there. Um, we'll start with you, Tom Alderson. What sort of ideas were percolating around in your head when you were listening to her speak? Yeah, so Southampton, like on paper, played like a 4-2-2-2, but more recently they played... A 4-4-2-2-2? Four, four, two, two, two. Four, there's, there's four... There's, there's 11 players, approximately. <laughs> 13 players. <laughs> uh, yeah, 4 2 Two two. Have I said that right that time? Right. That's what on paper. But on um, when they're actually in possession recently, they've been playing a three-five-two with um, Walker Peters pushing on, and they don't really play a right winger. So I was thinking about one sort of the left-hand side role, like who's going to mark um, Walker Peters? Because would that would that be um, Harrison, who's done that before? Alioski, who's done that before? But then with them playing a back three, do you want to leave Harrison up front? Like kind of up front to press their back three because that's what we've seen um, done in uh, previous games against a back three and that's been successful because if you leave that role to Click or Roberts or Rodrigo then I have a feeling that they'll just be able to bypass our press and then it'll be Armstrong and uh, James Ward-Prowse will just be there and have quite a lot of space which doesn't doesn't sound like something we want to happen so I was just thinking one about who he presses and two who plays on that left hand side. It's a good job. It's a good job we don't have Joe Hill on this episode because the, the mental <laughs> exertion of saying Carl Walker Peters last time. Oh God, I was struggling. I've got it written down as KWP and JWP, and I only realised just then. And I was like, get, I was trying to get my mouth around. It was horrendous. Yeah. So it's Carl Walker Peters, not Carl Water Peters. Um, <laughs> just for the clarification. Um, yeah, I think this is the this is the interesting question, right? The structural question. Um, 
yeah, I I agree. They they do basically play a sort of three five two formation when when in possession. Uh, the problem is is that against a three five two, we usually play a three five two ourselves, or we'll fall into that sort of um, into that sort of system. The problem I think with playing Harrison as the as the second striker in in scare quotes is that. Um, when you actually look at that back three, it's Salisu is the is the player who's at the moment playing as the the left sided centre back, um, and I guess um, if we we used Harrison, then you'd have to play Rafinha as a right wing back, um, and so you'd probably pull him out of the game a little bit. Whereas I would quite like to see him going up against Salisu, and I think you know Harrison playing as a as a right wing back, a left wing back, or dropping in and helping out as a left wing back will probably uh, work out okay um, in that sense. So, uh, Darren, I know you were thinking about this a little bit this morning. What's your what's your take on it? Yeah, I, I think I agree. I think that, that my preference would be to see Harrison kind of managing managing the left hand side um, and 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 drop dropping in as as the wing back and trying to get Rafinha more involved in advanced positions because I think we saw in the home Southampton game that that when when we're able to kind of get him into space and I and and because they play with you know quite a high line I think that 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 we're able to um get him behind them and cause them a lot of problems so the more advanced we can have Rafinha in this game the more comfortable I'll be I think I think as well in this in this game because they play the four two 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 the two wide players tend to play a little bit more narrowly, and and I guess it just it makes more sense then for the um, if we are playing the three three one three, roughly with with someone dropping back on that onto Kyle Walker Peters. So I've just drawn it out because so, it's one of those things where you have to draw it out or else your head will explode. But um, you you then want your two wing backs sort of staying on those um, on those narrow players. Um, and then, and then you'll, I guess we'll 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 see um, the same sort of situation that we saw um, against uh, against Burnley with with Phillips pushing up alongside whoever's in the eight spot, and then I think we'll just have Rafinha wide and 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 then Bamford between between the two of them. But it will be really interesting to see how that structural imbalance affects us um, because I don't think we've seen anything quite like it really under Bielsa. So um, I'm I'm kind of interested in in seeing how how much that destabilizes us whether or not we can use that to our advantage or whether or not it's just going to be a case of Harrison just sort of being pulled out of uh, out, out of position. I guess the other option is that we could I don't know. I I feel like we we've done this before where we've we've sort of played Dallas in in the left wing back area and then used Alioski as the wider as the wider player um the wider forward player but again I don't think I don't think that necessarily buys us anything I think it's just probably better to treat this as a 4-4-2 and just have Harrison tracking back yeah I think I agree I think I agree so functionally it would be like a 3-5-2 but yeah yeah well in in possession yeah yeah in and out of possession it would just in and out of possession it would change yeah 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 sure yeah but it will be interesting seeing seeing um, what happens there uh Darren what about you what were the ideas that were sort of uh, in your mind yeah, I was think I was trying to think about how we managed the ball, particularly first half, because uh, Lucy referred to this, and it's something that we definitely saw happen in the first game. Is that that kind of when their energy and intensity levels dropped um, in in the first game, they they still played high because they needed a goal, but but they kind of really stopped pressing as intensely, or or they were or certainly we were able to bypass their their press more directly. And um, and as we showed in that first Southampton game and as we showed yesterday, we're really good at taking advantage when those sort of gaps start to appear. So I'm thinking about how how do we manage that first half? Do we try play through the press? Do we try and kind of 
you know, stick to the ideal way that Bielsa wants us to play and, and build up build up through the thirds? Or do we or do we go more direct from the start? Because I think I remember last time Alien saying afterwards that at half time the players had made a decision to play more directly rather than that being something which had come, you know, as as a kind of tactical instruction from Bielsa. So I'd just be really interested to see how we do manage because we know that Southampton's press, particularly early in games, can be quite intense and difficult to get through. So I wondered what, what you guys thought about that. Yeah, I wondered I wondered about how I mean, yes, just looking back at the stats over yesterday actually, just the progressive passing was was really quite um, low down we we weren't we we were barely doing any sort of we, we usually see our centre-backs doing a huge amount of of a passing distance but neither of our centre-backs yesterday were particularly high up the list uh, again it was sort of um, ailing ailing with the, the the most progressive distance from passing um, and then Dallas and then uh, Melier, which sort of makes sense. Say Melier must saying. be up there. Yeah, 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 and and so I wonder whether or not we'll just do the same thing from from the start. But we did see that, like you say, in the in the Southampton game last time, and I think maybe we saw that a little bit from from Leeds yesterday at the beginning, like an attempt to build up and then just just the recognition that the best way of playing was was just sort of going into channels and trying to get the ball long and then compete for it higher up the pitch. I, I wonder whether or not we'll see the same thing happen um, uh, on Tuesday as well. Um, Tom Alderson, what, what's your feeling on this? I'd, I'd like to see us go more direct. Um, I think that's how we, we had that success last time. We had that success yesterday. Um, but m- more importantly, just st- stay in the game. Like just either don't well have a nil nil, or I- ideally you'd score. But if they get ahead, I think it might we might struggle. Um, so if we can get to the second half and them sort of having to basically just try and repeat the first game basically where um we could then when they tire we can then start playing that ideal way that we want would be also wants us to play um and i think we can have success like that but yeah i would go direct i think it's just the most it seems the most obvious way to get success in this game yeah i think there was a there was a piece of i'm not going to say stats because i don't think it's stats it's more like trivia but um is it johnny cooper who had a piece out just uh, had a, a, a screenshot out showing the games that Leeds have won away from home when they scored first um and i think i mean obviously the the deeper point is if you can manage to get a goal first then you you're probably gonna be in with a good sh- chance of winning unless you're brighton these days um, <laughs> but i think especially away from home when when you play in that manner because you are more likely to score a goal and then sit back and try and protect a lead to a certain extent or you'll see or you'll you know as soon as you score against an opposition they will be more likely to then push out thinking we're at home we need to win this game and that leading to spaces opening out and and Leeds doing really well in those scenarios I think there's 31 games where we've conceded first uh, scored first away from home and we've won 30 of them um, and I think that that's kind of the the watchword of a lot of these games is that so much of it comes down to who gets the first goal if if you get the first goal in those sorts of games then it, 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 it a lot will swing on it and I think that's what you're saying to a certain extent isn't it Tom yeah just a bit of a side point is like are the fans there on Tuesday because will that if they like they do sc- if we do score or is even then that would you'd think that might encourage them to come out a bit more I'm pretty sure there's fans in for the last two games. Yeah, um, I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's why this, these games were moved. Yeah, I, I'm sure that will probably come into it as well, and that'll be quite the experience because I think we we had what two thousand fans in uh, against Chelsea, and that was it. Um, and also, just the the experience of watching the FA Cup final yesterday with fans in was just, I think, for a lot of people, quite emotional. Um, yeah, it was, it was you know, it was, <laughs> it was just really nice to watch. So yeah, hopefully, that will have a, an impact in the game as well. Um, let's move on. I am aware of time. Um, let's just talk about personnel. So 
Leeds will be will be playing a sort of three three one three structure. However, it sort of pans out in in reality. Do we keep the same individuals within the system, Darren? I think probably. Um, I, I don't think you could. I don't think there's a necessarily compelling case to to change anybody or any obvious changes that that you would necessarily want to make. Um, yeah, I think we'll see Ellen at right at right right centre back again, and, and and much the same same personnel as as yesterday, barring any injuries, of course. I would bring Cork back in if he was fit, um, just out of interest more than anything. I would, I'd quite like to see him play that central centre-back role and Lorente on the right, which would then allow Ailing to push up to the right. And I think you'd probably drop Alioski in that case and that might make your decision about who plays that left-hand side role a bit easier because then you've got Harrison's the only one that's playing on the left. So I think that, that seems pretty the, probably the easiest way of dealing with it, but I think it'll be the same team, to be honest. Uh, and Tom, who do you think needs to play well if Leeds get a result at Southampton? I've got Lorente. I think I just think that um, we was this his first game that when mm. um, I think it just if if we can defend well, I think we will we've probably got a very good chance of getting something out of it. And I would like I know how much Josh Hobbs loves a through ball, so I think we can see some <laughs> of some of Lorente's through balls uh, when their press goes. Um, slows down in the second half and so hopefully we can see a couple of them and that can help us win yeah I've been looking at his data recently actually and he's become very safe in possession like he's not doing that sort of stuff anymore maybe he's um, been listening to the podcast <laughs> maybe <laughs> um, but I, I, I mean that's obviously again it's a, it's a fairly small sample size but over the last over the course of maybe the last four or five games he just hasn't been really he hasn't really been carrying the ball or, or passing the ball progressively at all maybe that's simply because I think I mean yesterday he's playing in the middle of a back three so it's not that important and we were going quite direct as well but um, I do find that a bit of an interesting phenomenon that he's sort of and, and it's something we've talked about happening with under 20 23s a bit you know when they come out and they they play quite you know exciting progressive football and then give them a few and I, I, I do wonder whether or not someone said to him that you know let's let's tone it down a bit but I don't know why they would because it, it seems as though that would be the sort of thing that Bielsa would want but that's a that's a side thought for maybe another podcast um Darren how about you who needs to play well I I think that um, in in build up in deep build up Southampton are there to be pressed so I I think it'd be really good if we could uh, if we could see our press working really well and kind of really getting amongst them and trying to win the ball high and, and create danger for them that way because I know that they are quite patient when in, in their in, in their build up um, until they decide to spring so I think there there, there will be opportunities for for Bamford, Clear, Harrison and Rafinha particularly to really put them under some intense pressure and so that that's kind of it's not an individual for me it's that it's that function in the team that I think I want to see playing well. I feel like Hasenhutl gets a bit of a bad rap. Obviously, they 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 had a bit of a slump in the mid season, um, but he's I think he's just a smart he's a smart manager who's working with you know when he went into that club he saved them from relegation last season and you know you want to see you want they started off this this season quite well and then had that that precipitous decline and then they're, they're playing okay again now they've picked up a few results they'll they'll be comfortably mid table probably by the end of the season. Um, so I think this will be an interesting game because I think when we played them last time they were still in that slump and I feel as though they're, they're probably a little bit more solid now so it should be it should be a, a fun one but um, Darren how do you think the game's going to pan out? Yeah I, I, I suspect in terms of the pattern it'll be quite similar to the, to, to the first one and to yesterday and that you know that they'll, they'll probably give us some problems um, early in the game and and it's it's how we respond to those problems that kind of dictates how the rest of rest of it will go. So um, I think we've we, you know we've we've managed to get through it the last couple of times. I, 
you know, I, I think it'll be, I think it'll be an exciting game, um, and and I think there'll be, you know, plenty of plenty of good football on display, and and two two teams, you know, really trying to put their opposition under pressure. I think we'll come out on top in the end, but I think it'll be narrow. Yeah, I completely agree with all of that. I think we might actually, we might get the game that we thought we were going to get um, when we first played, um, because like you say, that Southampton are better now than they were then, and. So I've, I've, hopefully it'll be exciting, but I agree with Darren. I think we should have enough to to come out on top. John, how do you think the game's going to go? Oh, Darren, you've <laughs> you've done the old switcheroo, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> I have. Yeah, I, I agree with what both of you said. I think <clears throat> maybe it will be a little bit more transitional, like we thought it would be in the first game. Um, I think it will be two teams going fairly direct, and it will it will depend it will depend on who gets the first goal, which is a really boring thing to say. But I think if they get the first goal, I think we'll have a chance of getting back into the game. But I think if we get the first goal, then we have the chance to to maybe ease past them two or three nil. So there we are. Um, we'll be back on Wednesday with another double header because we obviously go straight from Tuesday's game into the game on Sunday against West Bromwich Albion, which is the last game of the season so it will be our last preview game for a fairly long time which would be nice for me it'll give me a little bit of a a relax but it will also mean that we are heading into postseason it's a very american thing to say isn't it (laughs) but yeah lots of things planned for when we finish we'll we'll do a few review episodes like we did last time we'll look back over our preview episode for the for the the season which we did as an over under episode so we'll go back and have a laugh at some of the stupid things that we said that turned out to be completely wrong um um, but we're also interested in what you guys think. So if there's any um, any content that you'd like to see, do get in touch. Let us know what it is that you what you're thinking. Um, we'll be um, sorry if you w- would like to see more of what we do. Then we do have a Patreon channel which has um, bonus podcast episodes. Which we I think we're going to do. A, we'll, we'll we'll get a bonus podcast episode out soon. The schedule has just been wild. But we also do have video analyses. I will get a video analysis of the Burnley game up tomorrow. If you are interested in that, head over to www.patreon.com forward slash allstats, aren't we? But with that, we arrive at the end of the podcast. So all there is for me to do is to say thank you, Darren. Thank you. And thank you, Tom. Thank you very much. And we'll see you on Wednesday. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.